While we make every effort to broadcast the correct information, we are still learning and by no means are White Coat Warriors hosts or guests acting as healthcare physicians or professionals. We will double check the facts presented, but realize that medicine is a constantly changing and complex science and art. We are simply presenting our views and the views of others on our experiences in the healthcare system and will be as evidence-based as possible based on our own experiences. We welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical conditions in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall White Coat Warriors, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates with White Coat Warriors be responsible for damages arising from the use of the podcast or blog. Hello, everyone. This is Rachel Bartholomew, host of the White Coat Warriors podcast. And today I am joined by guest Eve McDavid. Eve is a Google strategy executive or post executive now, because I think you've, lo- you've left the job, um, a stage 2B cervical cancer survivor, a devoted wife, a mom of two young children. She joined the World Health Organization's fight to eradicate cervical cancer by 2020, 2030, heck yes and is collaborated with Wheel Cornell Medicine to redesign treatment of devices to improve women's care, access, and outcomes, specifically with cervical cancer, which we'll dive into. But Eve, you are like someone that I am screaming and cheering on from the sidelines always, uh, because we're just personally connected at the hip for life now. please welcome, 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 welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I feel the same way. I am so touched by our very fast friendship and our professional endeavors and everything that we hope to accomplish. So it's, it's just an honor to be here. Thanks. Thanks. Um, okay. So diving in, uh, cervical cancer. We've got this kind of underlying thing as survivors. If we can even call ourselves survivors, I know it's like this whole thing about is survivor even survivor when you're just like constantly having this nagging thing that you just went through. Um, I'm just so happy to have you here to kind of share a different perspective than me blabbing on about my diagnosis, but you have an insane story about how you got diagnosed and how you found out and what you went through, share your story with us, share, share your journey, even, even before the cancer diagnosis, I know you went through some things, so share your journey. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. So my experience with cervical cancer really sort of kicked into full gear in January of 2020. I was living in New York City. It was right before the onset of the pandemic and I was pregnant with our second baby. Uh, I had gone in for a prenatal exam to see how close I was to delivering uh, in the United States on the particular healthcare policy that I have. It's quite common to be seen every single week in the last weeks of pregnancy by your OBGYN to see, okay, how close are we to to, uh, being ready to have the baby? And, you know, through my pregnancy, I had a a really sort of interesting ride. Um, I had uh, delivered a healthy baby girl, my older daughter, she's now five, Uh, a couple of years before. And in between the pregnancies, I'd had a miscarriage. And so I was hypervigilant for, you know, what was going on in my body and what I should be aware of with the second pregnancy in a way that I wasn't the first time with my daughter. You know, when, when you go through grief, when you go through loss, when you go through something unexpected, although not altogether uncommon, um, you sort of have your antenna up. Um, so during my pregnancy with my second baby, um, I was really fatigued. I had spotting 
And I went in for a number of additional checks and there was nothing really, you know, markedly abnormal because I was a very <laughs> uh, busy woman with a demanding career with a toddler at home. And so the bleeding could be explained, the exhaustion could be explained. Uh, but, you know, I think as you and I both know, when you know something is amiss, you just, you feel it in your bones. Um, so I get to 35 weeks, I go in for this exam and my doctor discovers a tumor on my cervix in the middle of the exam. Uh, and it was, um, you know, it, it was a showstopper. I mean, you know, she knew something was wrong. I knew something was wrong. And uh, everything after that happened very, very quickly. So um, I was very fortunate to have exceptional care. It's a, you know, a, a privilege to be in the healthcare system. I was entering as a, um, you know, and I, I say this with tremendous humility, a wealthy white woman in New York City on a Google healthcare plan. Um, I don't think it gets more protected than that. And so, you know, in three days time, I'd met with an oncology team. I had scans. We made plans to deliver my son via C-section and then have a biopsy during that same procedure. And then the following day, once I was no longer pregnant, the doctors performed more scans and they came to a stage 2B cervical cancer diagnosis. Um, and they, they caught it minutes before it spread. I mean, the, the reality is that pregnancy in many ways is a risk factor for cervical cancer. And my pregnancy had um, created the environment where the cancer could just grow explosively. Um, I had a seven centimeter tumor and we were very, very fortunate that uh, it was only locally advanced. Um, I recovered for two weeks at home uh, after I had my son, and then I started the standard of care for stage 2B, which is six weeks of chemotherapy, 25 external beam radiation sessions, and then five brachytherapy procedures. Brachytherapy is internal radiation. Um, and the way I like to describe it is that, you know, I began my treatment during peacetime. So it was before the pandemic, I was showing up to my doctor's place of work. It's very ordinary for them to go to their jobs and treat cancer every day. And that is not a crisis. Um, although it is, of course, for us as the patient. Um, and then about halfway through at the end of February, everything started to get really complicated. Um, you know, one of the things that was the most extraordinary experience, I think, about my care was the way that my doctors continue to treat even when other really mission critical systems in the hospital were shutting down due to COVID. And they did not, they did not delay, they did not compromise in in any capacity. Um, and so when I look back on my care and when I look back on this extraordinary outcome that I've had, um, I'm now in remission. My son is two and a half. We are, you know, as you mentioned, we are survivors and we are as healthy as we can be, I think on the other side of something like this. Um, I credit so much of this to everything being a just-in-time miracle and the ferocity of this care team saying, we're gonna continue, we're going to stay the course, we hold the line and our care continues. Um, and and that approach uh, and that output is what has me here today on this podcast, having this conversation. Oh my goodness. Okay. First of all, you're superwoman because you, you know, had a baby, had a career, had a miscarriage, which is like, how do you mentally, physically, all of those things recover from that? get slapped with a cancer diagnosis while you're pregnant. So the, the complexities of that and mentally dealing with that, and then just like, oh yeah, we'll just deal with a worldwide pandemic in the middle of all of that as well. You have been on a roller coaster. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I look at these last few years and I just pinch myself, you know, in some respects, everything is completely different about myself and my life and my family now than it was before. And um, we, you know, we feel in a... <laughs> we feel really lucky and really fortunate as, you know, as terrifying and as catastrophic as everything was, um, somehow we made it through. Okay. Before I dive into kind of some of the work you're doing, I want to dive yes. in a little bit into, you know, some of these things that you went through. I mean, 
I'm interested to know, you know, you're, you're hit with a miscarriage, which is absolutely devastating. And you're hit with a cancer diagnosis at a very, very fragile time. Um, those two things mentally, how, how, how did you deal with those things as a, as a human with emotions and and so many complex layers? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I, I'm so glad you asked this because I think when we play back the tape on this, we're going to hear from so many people how common these experiences are and how they themselves live through them. And many of the um, the women who go through these experiences do so in silence and all by themselves in a, you know, a sense, regardless of whether they're supported by family or a partner, these experiences are so complex and they're so isolating. Um, you know, the, the miscarriage was, um, it was incredibly painful. Uh, and it, it, I, I also track back to it as a real turning point for me. So um, it was the first time in my life that I had allowed myself to grieve something so personal and so devastating. And it was a total shutdown moment. Um, and it was, it was really the first time that in the aftermath of an experience that was so devastating that I understood that you know, what we do on this earth matters, what we do with the days that we have matter. And when you are faced with the fragility of life and understand what it's like to have it and then not have it, or to, you know, to be working towards something and then it's it's gone and it's over, um, you know, it, it helps us understand that um, we woke up today and that's about as much as we can count on. Right. And so, you know, what I, what I took from the miscarriage was it was the first time that I had ever drawn boundaries for myself in many respects. Uh, I looked at the work that I was doing professionally. I was, you know, I, I loved my career. I was at Google for almost 10 years before all of this started. And when the miscarriage occurred, I was in the midst of this really, Um, fast rising track in the private sector. And it was a very clear next step in what the next job would be, what the next promotion would be, what the next level would be. And that was something that, you know, had been really important to me. Uh, And then I went through this and I was like, okay, Uh, you know, what is the work that I'm doing in the world and, and does it matter? And I, at that point was considering a move to the public sector where I would be able to convert this background in media and marketing and technology and business and apply it to some really important public policy events that were intersecting with our work at Google. Um, So I had the chance to lead YouTube's business strategy for the 2020 election, the 2020 census and other major public policy events that were connecting with our business. And I thought, this is what it was for. You know, this is what this background was for to, to now be able to apply it to a human impact to be able to reach voters and educate them on the importance of of voting to reach folks who might not otherwise complete the census and help them understand the benefits to themselves and their communities of being counted and and represented in this um, you know incredible survey and so it was the first time where you know something like this had happened and I said hold on you know, my agency in this is now doing something about it. The way I show up in this world has to reflect that I care about the time that we have and I care that there's a real human impact of the effort. Um, the same thing happened with the cervical cancer diagnosis. So the day that I, I, I went in for that appointment, it was the day before my last day before maternity leave. And I was trying to figure out with my doctor, do I have enough days to get down to DC to lead this event with our DC team uh, and get on the train and do it, you know, or am I gonna like go into labor on the train? <laughs> and I think back now, I'm like, what on God's green earth was I thinking, you know, like wanting to get on a train at 35 weeks pregnant, I should have been like, no, someone else do that job, you know? Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd been in the midst of that. And then this cancer diagnosis comes up. And like you said, I was also a new mom and we were on the brink of this pandemic. And I just had a really sort of fascinating response to it, which was you're, you're grieving, you're terrified, you go into a state of shock. And I have really long history of figuring out how to navigate incredibly complex and competitive environments. And I do so by 
studying the problems that underpin those environments and, and figure out new, new way, ways through. Um, so when I was in treatment, you know, all I could see were areas of opportunity for better technology to advance the state of care that cervical health care is today in the US. And if it's that case in the US in one of the leading hospitals in the world, then we can only begin to imagine what it's like at facilities you know, everywhere else and, and what the state of care is like for, for every woman across this planet. And so I, I had the, the same reaction, but kind of like on steroids with this cancer diagnosis, which was, I'm not just going to pivot in terms of what I'm focusing on. I'm actually going to reorganize my entire career and figure out what is it about my background that maps to these really clear critical unmet needs that I'm seeing in the cervical healthcare system and how do I add my voice and my passion and my talents and my experience to actually fight for the change that I would have wanted to see as a patient in 2020 because it's it's all possible it was possible in 2020 and it's possible in 2022. A hundred percent. I want to touch on a little bit of that work specifically with the World Health Organization, but, you know, first thing I want to touch on, um, and I think it's an important thing to kind of bring up is I've seen again and again in the, the community groups that I, I connect with for cervical cancer or gynecological cancer as a whole. And you see again and again, this common theme of pregnancies kind of rearing these things to a head. And it's so fascinating that, and I, I don't know your case, but were things normal? Were things fine when you first, you would think that the doctors would be able to see these things when they find out, you know, you're pregnant and they're constantly seeing you and, you know, was it a drastic change that happened over time? What are some of the, the commonalities? Cause I'm sure I know you probably researched the hell out of it. <laughs> What are some of the things you're seeing there? Because I think it's it's so interesting to to highlight these things that we don't even think about can happen in these situations. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll tell you, you know, mine was a very extreme case in the sense that at my 20 week anatomy scan where there are pictures of my cervix, there's no evidence of a tumor. And then at 35 weeks, so four months later, not even, there's a seven centimeter mass. And that is like unheard of, right? Cervical cancer is typically slow growing, although we know that, you know, various pathologies can behave very differently. Um, you know, I, I mentioned this, this comment earlier that pregnancy is a risk factor. You know, when you're pregnant, your immune system knocks down to support the fetus. And then you also have an enormous source of blood flow that's going to the pelvis to support the fetus as well. And so if you have a high risk strain of HPV that has been persistent, it's incredibly important to have that dialogue with your doctors. Um, but that wasn't my understanding of HPV. I had been diagnosed with it when I first became sexually active as a young adult. Um, it was a high risk strain, but I knew very little about it at the time. And because after having one abnormal pap and everything after that was normal, even when HPV was showing up positive, I was like, okay, well, the PAP is normal. That's, you know, that's what we need to be looking at. Um, and the reality is, you know, HPV is the virus and cervical cancer is the symptom. And so if you're testing positive for the virus, like you always need to double click on that. Right. If you're testing positive consistently with a high risk strain of HPV, that is something that women need to have the language to describe and discuss with their providers so that when they become pregnant or when they're seeing a provider during pregnancy, there is a common understanding of what the care specifically related to HPV during pregnancy is going to be as the woman goes through her entire pregnancy. Um, and that is not something that the lay woman has any exposure to. And it's not something that many physicians talk about either. Um, one of the things that I am so interested in is helping women understand that there is this window of time in you know, the first trimester where it is perfectly safe to have screening. It's perfectly safe to um, have your doctor perform a pap test if needed. And if you're in this high-risk category, it's something that you know should, should definitely at least be a conversation. Um, 
you know, that's something like, and I think about myself and if someone had said, you need to have a pap while you're pregnant, I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like, we want to do that while I'm pregnant. Isn't that going to hurt the baby? What's the risk? Um, but you know, the way my oncologist will describe it, it's, it's, it's perfectly safe to do. Um, so I, I think, you know, on the whole, we need just much greater understanding in a very simple way of how does the lay woman show up to her doctor and say, I need to understand if I have HPV, I need to understand what the risk factors are and whether you know my makeup presents with those. And I need to understand what the plan should be during pregnancy as we go through this. And it should be a partnership. It should be a dialogue and it should be something that at every touch point in care we come back to and address. There's, there's no reason that um, any HPV diagnosis should be turning into cervical cancer. We can prevent it at this point. And a lot of that stems from being able to have this open and honest dialogue, especially around these times in a woman's life where she is just so much more vulnerable to developing this type of cancer. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's such an important piece to highlight. And I want to highlight because we're on the topic of HPV, there's, yeah. there's so much stigma, so much we don't understand. We don't even know how men carry it. It's all, you know, presented in women. It's, it's amazing what we, we don't know. And we think, you know, a vaccine, um, can kind of just, you know, and, and the vaccine has been amazing, but you know, there's a lot of us who just didn't, didn't get it right. We didn't get it because it wasn't, we were past the age and, um, you know, even the testing and the way that we're going through testing now, it's like now HPV testing is actually part of the norm versus just a pap test. But even in Canada, we haven't gotten to that point yet, but mm -hmm. you had, you had wrote an article in the insider called eventually my shame evaporated, my pain gave way to purpose. And you talk a lot about uh, the work around destigmatizing de HPV. Tell me a little bit about that. Absolutely. This is the, this is like the Gordian knot of cervical cancer. This is, I believe, the root of the problem here. I, I believe this is the reason that it is underfunded, under-researched, and has not advanced in terms of the state of care that's available in other fields of oncology because it is connected to the sexually transmitted virus that is so unbelievably common. <laughs> um, but again, still, there's so much silence and shame that shrouds it. Um, I, you know, one of the things that I would do in my work at Google was I had been working across so many different industries in, in the private and public sector. And I was, I become, um, you know, like really, really strong in pattern recognition and understanding how themes in one area apply to the businesses. And the way that I break it down is that every industry is made up of people, processes, and products. And so you can drop me into any field and I just have to figure out, you know, those three categories and then how are the decisions made and how does the money move? And you can sort of figure out, you know, you can figure out the, the, the state of the state. Um, with HPV, I look at what's happened with COVID and how we are now as a general public comfortable talking about a virus in a way that we have never been before. And we, you know, bring it out of the shadows, right? It's, it's not, um, it's not stigmatized to say I have COVID people say stay home and I'll send you some soup. You know, I view what's happened in the last couple of years as a real buoy. If we can capitalize on it, how do we normalize HPV the same way that we have been forced to normalize COVID. Um, you know, one of the things that is so interesting to me too is that there's such little education for young people around this virus. Um, you know, when we think about the way that uh, education systems teach sexual education, when we think about the ways that pediatricians may or may not be comfortable recommending the HPV vaccine to parents because they may or may not feel comfortable talking about sex. And for some reason, they you know feel that it's necessary to talk about sex when giving a vaccine, which it isn't. Um, these are all these sort of like micro barriers that, you know, they, they seem sort of small, but then, you know, they, they add up and what you end up with is a public that 
doesn't understand the virus, doesn't understand the value of early prevention with the vaccine before a person is sexually active between the ages of nine and 12, and does not understand that if you are an, an adult who's in our category, right? I had the vaccine in my 20s, but I'd already been exposed to HPV, so it wasn't effective. Um, but we are an entire generation of people with cervixes who, you know, the, the, for whom the vaccine is not effective. And so for us, our mandate on HPV is it is a normal part of a responsible adult's life to effectively manage an HPV infection in collaboration with your healthcare provider. What do you need to do? What conversations do you need to have? How do you need to stay on top of it so that you can play the long game here? You know, monitor it until your body hopefully clears it, right? That's the case in the majority of instances, a healthy immune system will, will clear the infection. Um, but in the instance that, you know, for some reason the person's immune system does not, um, what needs to what needs to happen? What does that follow up care need to be? And and how do you how do you block that out? How do you plan that out? I'm very interested in sort of the formalizing around what those different strategies look like for the different groups in these different scenarios where just again at the very high level, all of us need to become very comfortable talking about HPV because that is the opening the door to make everything else that I just described much simpler, much easier, and very, very possible. I'm speechless. I like, like you just said so many things that hit home, like relating it to COVID and the fact that viruses, it's like, we all can get it. We can all be impacted by this. You know, why is there no stigma? Why, why do viruses equal stigma? <laughs> the fact that like, I absolutely adore what you just said about treating this, like something we all have, because what is it? The statistics, like 90 to 95% of people have HPV in some sort yeah. of form. Like, why is it just it a part of our healthcare and, yeah. and, and something that we talk like you're going to get chicken pox as a kid. This is something we're just going to, you know, have to deal with. So yeah. fascinating. So, so fascinating. I love your, I love your approach. Thank you. Talk about World Health Organization yes. and then eradicating cervical cancer 2030, which is definitely coming up, which we definitely see the numbers going down. And I think part of that is obviously the, the vaccine and, but we talk vaccines, here comes the stigma and here comes yeah. all the people out of the woodworks, right? About infancy yeah. and stuff. But tell me a little bit about that work and, and what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I first came up for air after this, the treatment, the, the, you know, sort of raucous ride it was through, um, I was a woman on a mission. Uh, I had looked at my case. I had looked at the statistics and I was like, this is, this doesn't make any sense. You know, that anyone in, and I, I use the example of the U.S., in a wealthy nation, in a wealthy healthcare system, anyone who develops cervical cancer, anyone who dies of cervical cancer, that's a complete failure of the healthcare system. It's just, we have the tools to prevent, treat, and cure this disease. It's it's unconscionable that, that that's still going on. I thought, well, like, surely I am not the first person who has figured this out. You know, I had been, you know, reading, reading medical journals. I've been reading scholarly articles. I've been combing the internet for everything that I could find on this virus and on cervical cancer. And I thought, well, who in the world also cares about this? Because what I found was that I couldn't point to a single elected official in the United States, woman or otherwise, who has any sort of platform about gynecologic care, about cervical cancer, about HPV, about vaccination. It is just it, like, it does not exist. We do not have a movement around this field of sexual health and oncology the way we do around other public health issues and other, other fields of cancer. And so I thought this is a, this is a real vacuum. Um, 
Um, but it's not as though, you know, women aren't talking about it. Um, you go on YouTube and you, you know, you listen to the way that women talk about their diagnoses and, and everyone is talking about the shame and the stigma and how difficult it was for them, even within their own families to talk about their diagnoses. And I had experienced the exact same thing. You know, I had this very public role at Google and I was, you know, this very public professional person. And then when it came to this diagnosis, I couldn't even tell people I had cervical cancer. And I wrote about that a lot in the Insider article, how it really shattered everything I knew about myself. And, you know, if I couldn't even tell people I had cancer, then like, who was I? You know, what did that say about how I felt about myself underneath it all anyway? I had learned you know, really well in my career that the way you get things done is you go to the top of every industry, you figure out who are the leaders here, what are they doing, and are they interested in working together? I had a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> you know, I was I was coming from a role where I was used to getting at least the first meeting I'd asked for. You know, then it was on me to get the second, but I could always get the first. So I just said, who else in the world cares about this and can I get on their radar? And that was the case with the World Health Organization. Um, when we got connected, it was like this, the clouds parted and, you know, the sun was shining. So it was like, thank God, thank, you know, thank goodness that we have this global public health entity that cares about it and believes what I believe, that it's enough. This is treatable, this is preventable, this is curable. And so we should not be seeing the numbers in diagnoses and death in, in the way that we are. The work that I do with the WHO is to help provide an expert opinion on survivorship and also an expert opinion on what it would take to transform this field with modern technology. Um, there are a lot of critical gaps, not only in access to care, but in the mechanisms by which care is delivered today that modern technology could solve. And that was, you know, sort of my other aha moment. First, it was like the silence of the shame, the stigma, there are no public figures, who's owning the stage and like, where is that voice? And then, you know, what would it take to actually bring the technology that I participated in the development of, but it was being used for, you know, business intelligence tools and marketing tools. And, you know, what would it look like if we brought that technology into cervical healthcare? How could that bring the field up to date with, with the rest of medicine? It's really been an honor. It's, it's wonderful to see the way that they have gained so much buy-in all around the world and how their goals are being executed on a local level. Um, and what I would say about the work is that that we need more people to get involved. You know, we need every person who cares about this in their local jurisdictions and their local communities, anyone who's in a position of power to do anything about this, please join in, please get involved and find ways to make a difference in your own communities because, you know, the goals always start top down, but it's what happens at the ground level that, that really makes the difference. 100%. And I think it happens in our own communities, but we know too that, and especially with WHO, focusing on those areas that really have this tenfold, right? We look at yeah. Africa, we look at, you know, India and some of these countries that, you know, they don't have the same resources that we do over here in North America. And, and these, these things, even though eradication is very much possible, it's still very much rampant and until we can figure out how to tackle those challenges it's a it's a huge undertaking and I, and I the support for women isn't there right yeah. you know any sort of gynecologic condition any reason that would you know threaten your ability to carry children any reason that would threaten your ability to be a, like attractive partner for your husband um, any reason that you know threatens that for women in in any country but you're right particularly in low middle income countries there's like add that to the list of barriers that exist here and, and make this so unbelievably difficult to penetrate. Yeah. I was going to say not even cervical cancer can be all sorts of things that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's, it's on a long list of areas where women are failed all over this world. Yeah, yeah for sure. Okay. So I want to go into to what you're now working on, which I yeah. think is like, I want you to explain to the users, or users, listeners, yeah. 
what users of this device actually go through because I didn't have to go through it, but I know many people who have, and I read the horror stories on Facebook regularly about this torture that cervical cancer patients have to go through when it comes to internal radiation. But before I dive into that, give me your aha. How do you, how do you go from Google and tech <laughs> conquering the world to being like, screw it. I'm starting a company. Like it's amazing. Um, yeah. but you know, what was that kind of shift in that moment before we get into like the details of what you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And I have to say, again, I I feel so unbelievably lucky. Like building my career at Google was one of the highlights of my professional lifetime. And it has given me the foundation to do just about everything that I'm doing. So I have so much gratitude for the experiences that I had and the people I'd, I'd met along the way. Um, you know, it, it was never the plan, right? Talk about plans, right? It was never the plan to to move on from Google. It was um, it was this wake up moment of these are all the projects that I have scoped based on what I saw in treatment, what I now understand these problems are, and what I believe can be made better with better technology. And where can I go to get a partner to help me? build. And it just so happened that my first green light on a project came with my own treating physician, my radiation oncologist at Weill Cornell Medicine. And she has performed these brachytherapy procedures for much of her career. And we had some unbelievable aha moments during treatment where we both were like, what the F is going on here? And like, why is this going on? Um, And so, you know, I have, um, the way I describe myself is I only have one gear and I just don't quit. And so when I, when I got a green light and when I had all these really encouraging signals of this is the time for this type of disruption, I mean, I I can't even believe we're saying this, but like, you know, we're in this post-row era and I'm saying it's never been a better time to invest in women's health, which is absolutely the truth, but it feels so, you know, incongruent to say those two ideas in in the same sentence, but we've come a long way and there's there's a lot to go. And so when I started getting really encouraging feedback that there was a path for this, there was a critical unmet need, there was demand from physicians to make this better, there obviously was demand from patients to change this from something that's so brutalizing and traumatizing into a humane approach to cancer care, which I think we can all get on board with. I just thought now is the time to bet on myself and really see what's possible. Um, And I'd I'd learned through my career at Google that being entrepreneurial was one of the most important elements of getting the job done well, right? You're constantly jockeying for resources and building coalitions and helping leadership understand the value of the work that you're doing. A lot of those skill sets are so immediately transferable to being an entrepreneur. The only thing I hadn't done was started the company. So I said, okay, um, you know, what would that look like? And we've been really fortunate to work through the Wild Cornell Medicine ecosystem where they have a lot of resources to help physicians and resource uh, researchers figure out, okay, all these amazing discoveries that I'm making in the lab or the operating room, is this a viable business? If I were to put some structure around this, is there a market for this product that I just invented? We've been able to really sort of like follow the breadcrumbs of what does it look like to create a biotech company with the structure and the support from Cornell. Um, And that's taken out a lot of the guesswork that I think someone else who, you know, was coming in maybe from the same background, but without that system might not have been so effective so, so quickly. It's been a rocket ship. We co-founded our company Mission Driven Tech this spring. We have our IP filed. We won pre-seed funding in a biotech startup competition earlier this year. And just this past Monday, uh, Remission Foundation, the cancer research nonprofit that has selected our work and our research at Wild Cornell Medicine as their 2022 grant recipient has just raised over $100,000 
towards our research and development work at Cornell um, as of last week. So, you know, we're, we're on a tear and it's an open party. So anyone who's interested in joining in and supporting, uh, we are just getting going and we really view this initial work as our first endeavor in one of the many ways to improve the continuum of care across all of cervical health care. Amazing. I, I want to dive in a little bit more about that. Yes. But first, you know, I, I think I think you're pretty much as crazy as I am when you're going through treatment and you're like, there's a project, there's a problem, there's an opportunity. Like how, you know, how in such a traumatic experience did you find the opportunities in the project? Like walk me through your mental framework of going yeah. through is it just yeah. your whole background like is it just you like what it's it's those two things but I'll tell you this um it's also my husband uh I I never could have imagined a future like this and I'll tell you like you know it was rock bottom for a real long time I mean I was I was postpart while I was pregnant then I was very, very quickly postpartum. Then I was very, very quickly in menopause from the treatment. And it was the pandemic. We had two young children under, you know, two and a half and under. And we weren't around anyone. We had to leave our home. We had to leave New York City. Um, and, you know, <laughs> that was a really ugly picture. Like, And that I think ugly is like the kindest word I can use from it for that entire experience. And my husband is a clinical psychotherapist. And the, the day that I got diagnosed, he put his practice on hold and he became my primary caregiver. He took me to every appointment. He was there for every procedure. Um, you know, he, he didn't miss a moment. And there was that support and that unconditional love that helped me see this is someone who shows up for me no matter what. And we, you know, we'd been tested before, but this was like a, this was a really, really big test. Um, but what he said to me very, very early on, and I think this is so important as we think about, you know, how do we, how do we help those who are in a position like this see what's possible and how their experiences and their skill sets can come to make an enormous contribution to this field? Because again, there's no, <laughs> there's no shortage of projects to do here. So anyone who's thinking about jumping in, like, please, you know, two feet in right now, please. Um, you know, he had said to me, he he talked about the the um you know, actual brain chemistry and this, the concept of neuroplasticity and how your brain is constantly creating new highways and, and new patterns and that it's possible, especially in these times of great stress and great trauma to like rewire everything, right? Like instead of falling into the old pattern that is really, really common to fall into when something like this happens, um, you know, what if you did things differently? Like what if you, what if your belief system changed and adapted? What if, you know, the, the way that you found hope really could be rooted in why it matters so much to survive this and what you will do on the other side? And without that, mirror held up to me of why I was battling this and what it would mean and what could be possible in the aftermath. Um, I don't know that like this would have been my reality. Um, the, the clinical phrase for this is post-traumatic growth. And that's a, a really common experience for those who either have the wherewithal to understand that's possible or someone who like my husband, you know, planted some seeds really early on. Um, but it's, you know, it, like that's the hero's journey. That's, that's like a very common thread through all of human history that, you know, we rise, right? Things knock us down and we rise. We, we come up with new ideas and new solutions and we, we build a better way forward. Um, so, you know, this entire um, ethos that I have around this, that I, I feel incredibly fortunate, I feel so damn lucky. Um, he helped me see that that was an outcome that I could choose to believe in. And, you know, there's a real power in that. Oh my God, I'm speechless again. And like, this is the second tears that have welled up. Oh my goodness. And you're pretty much saying that we all need a clinical psychologist partner to like help us 
through this. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. I had other people on my mental health care treatment team at the time too, but he was in the pole position. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. That's, that's incredible. I absolutely adore that. Um, Thank you. Oh, so good. So good. Okay. I want you to tell us now the details of brachytherapy. Yes. Tell us yes. what it is. Tell us the horse and yeah. everything that you go through because you've lived through it and what you're working on to change this horrific, horrific treatment. Yes. Yes. Brachytherapy is internal radiation. And I should you know, preface everything that I say with, I have so much respect for every physician who has delivered this procedure and helped cure women of cervical cancer since the beginning of this offering many, many years ago. Brachytherapy has been around for a long time. Its origins trace to Marie Curie's discovery of radium and its ability to treat cancer. And the idea that you could bring this nuclear power source so close to a tumor inside of the body and be able to blast it and literally melt away tumor cells. It's, it's just so remarkable. I mean, I look at this and I'm like, this is like the oldest and the newest fields of Western medicine all in one procedure. Um, so it's part of standard of care, which means that for every woman who's diagnosed with stage 1B to 4A cervical cancer, this is something that if your doctor is not talking about as part of your treatment regimen, it absolutely should be part of the conversation. In the way it occurs in a diagnosis like mine, so for stage 2B, there's eight weeks where for first-line treatment, you have to get all your care in within that eight-week window. So your first six weeks are chemo and external radiation. Your last two to three weeks are these internal brachytherapy procedures. And they occur four to five times over that two to three week period. There's a few days in between for recovery. And the reason it's so important that all this care happens within this eight week window is that research has shown that every day care extends beyond that eight week window, the cure rates drop precipitously. So this eight week window, these 56 days are a woman's best chance to be cured of cervical cancer. So everything has to go right. And that would be great if the procedure worked in the most optimal sense, but it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't is because the medical devices that are used in these procedures are so dated, they were never designed to properly fit a woman's anatomy. The current devices were designed in 1971. And you know, in the US, the FDA started regulating medical devices in 1976. And women weren't included in clinical trials until the early 90s. So we're working with tools today in 2022 that are from the early 70s. And I challenge any listener on this podcast or of this podcast to think of another field of medicine that is still using tools from 1971. I, I think we'll have a hard time pointing to another field. Um, so it's it's not just that they're dated, right? Because there are plenty of things that are old that you know society continues to hobble along with and don't cause problems. Um, these devices in particular. So I'll describe the procedure and then I'll point out all the sort of pain points, literal pain points that occur as a result of the devices. So in the United States, a woman will go in for her procedure. She will be in a radiation suite typically. So um, that may be in you know, the basement floor of a hospital. Um, her physician, her treating physician will be there. There'll also be an anesthesiologist and a nursing team, and she'll have sedation so that she is not awake during the insertion of the devices. After they're inserted, there'll be MRI or CAT scan to determine the placement of the device. Then the radiation oncologist and the physicist who supports the procedure will look at the device placement, they'll look at the uh, positioning of the tumor, and they'll produce calculations to figure out how to best design the dosing of the radiation so that the tumor is targeting and the surrounding 
tissue and organs, which are very, very important to a woman's quality of life, right? The cervix is, you know, right in the thick of everything. It's at the top of the vagina. It's at the bottom of the uterus. It's right next to the bladder, the bowel, right? There's a lot of really, really important material in its direct vicinity. Um, so how to best direct the dosing to spare the surrounding tissue so the woman has the best chance of the cancer being treated and cured, and then also living a high quality of life in the aftermath. Then when all the approvals are in place and the plan is set, then the actual treatment occurs and it doesn't take very long. It may you know, only be 10, 15 minutes, something like that. Uh, and after the treatment is administered, the devices are removed. And in the United States, it's quite common for there to be no anesthesia for the removal. And around the world, particularly in low and middle income countries where they are fortunate enough to have access to brachytherapy, they're not may, there may not be any sort of pain management whatsoever for the entire procedure. Maybe a woman has some Tylenol, maybe she gets a Xanax, but that's it. And again, if this, you know, weren't so brutalizing and traumatizing, that wouldn't be such a problem. But the way physicians describe the removal of the devices is that it will feel like childbirth. And so coming into my first procedure, it's the end of the procedure. And my doctor tells me, okay, we have to take these devices out and it's going to feel like childbirth. And I looked at her and I was like, I just had a baby. What are you talking about? Like, that's part of this and it's going to be five times. And this is your job. You have to, you have to tell people this, like, my God, what is going on here? I mean, my goodness. And you see, I'm like very excited about this now. Um, so that was procedure number one and procedure number two, when she took out the devices, I said, I, let's look at these. I, let's look at these together. I want to see what this is. And she took out the device and she showed me and we looked at it together and we were like, why does it look like this? Why is it not dynamic? Why is it not flexible? Why is it not adjustable? Why is it that a physician has to take this out the way that they do? It just, it doesn't make sense. And, you know, fortunately, I mean, my physician is like the most remarkable woman I've ever met. Um, she's, she's so tremendous. You know, she, she had the same aha moment, which was, why do we have to accept the tools that we have, the tools that we are trained on? There's, of course, a better way to do this. And we should, we should explore that. So before I, I move on, I, I just want to make one other point because um, some of the feedback I get is like, well, why don't you just add more pain medicine? Why don't you add more, you know, anesthesia? And like, if, <laughs> first of all, there's women's pain is so greatly underestimated, particularly in gynecologic procedures that if people really cared about adding more anesthesia, then we would be in a much different situation than we are presently. I mean, women are barely given any pain medication for colposcopies, which are so incredibly painful. So just adding more pain medicine isn't the solution. Other thing that happens during these procedures is that they actually produce a lot of complications. So because these tools are so rigid and inflexible, in 20% of procedures, the physician unintendingly will perforate a woman's uterus. And when the devices are removed, 10% of the time, it'll cause vaginal lacerations, it will require hospital admittance. And remember, we're on the cock here. So if you perforate a woman's uterus, and she can't have her next brachytherapy procedure as scheduled, then her curate on the other side of this has already been compromised. And that's just unacceptable. So the device that we're developing solves for all those critical care issues preventing the perforation, preventing the lacerations, and preventing the trauma that has an outsized effect on recovery. The physical complications are one side of it. More than 40% of women experience post-traumatic stress disorder just from this procedure alone. And that affects her ability to recover. It affects her ability to be sexually active in the future. And it affects her ability to move on from this stage of her life that she deserves to because she already went through treatment. It doesn't have to punish her on the other side of this as well. And so that's really what our work is doing. It's modernizing the devices. Um, we're also drawing inspiration from other fields of medicine that have already advanced to solve for this. Like we look at prostate cancer, 
as an example, the work that has happened in prostate for the last 30 years to protect a man's virility and to prevent incontinence is like all that we're asking for over here in cervical cancer, right? Um, it's, it's doable and it's been done. So we look at those fields of medicine and we say, what can we learn from that? And what can we bring into the development and design of our device? And, and what we're finding is that there are a lot of very simple engineering principles that are translatable to this field too. And so that's what we're bringing to life here as, as we design this new device. Course, you know, a man's, specific cancer is going to have all the advancements in the world. Right. But yeah, women. And then I love it. Of course, you're just like, oh yeah, just, it's going to feel like childbirth, remove it. Oh, let's talk about the device and innovate on it. Of course, you're going to be the person to do that. <laughs> I, I mean it. I only have one gear. I mean it. Hilarious. But really like, you know, you're, I don't know how else to describe it other than it was so obvious. And what, what really, like, what really I held on to, especially as I was in recovery was, you know, you read the academic literature about brachytherapy and this is everywhere. You know, there's, there's a, a study from South Africa from 2016, women say they'd rather die of cervical cancer than continue to go through brachytherapy. And it shows up as many as 25% of women do not persist. They begin brachy and then they don't complete it. And we know what happens, right? Their tumors recur and they'll die. So the proof points exist and now it's okay, how do we sum up what's been going on in the field and take what we know about how it can be better, put it all together and then build. To me, it's like such a simple, clear proposition, you know? Yeah, for sure. Give the listeners a little bit of a visual of what we're talking about when we talk about a device. Is it like metal? You talk about inflexible and rigid. I can only imagine, but give kind of the visual. Yes. Yes. So the current device is comprised of titanium tubes. So these thin metal rods called the tandem, and that goes through the cervix into the uterus. And then on sort of like flanking the tandem on the, you know, side by side on the tandem are two additional metal rods that have these silicon, they're like capsules. They're like these large globes that sit at the end of these rods and those sit at the base of the cervix. And so what that does is it allows for an optimal field of radiation dose to be administered to the cervix and the uterus as needed. These tools are also used to treat uterine cancer as well. So same applicability there. And then the ovoids, these, these like globes on the side, what they do is they help keep the device in place. And then they also help allow the radiation to get to all different points of the cervix without getting too close to the tissue that's there. Um, so like this, this has worked and it's worked for a very, very long time, but does it work as well as it could and it should and women and physicians deserve in 2022? Definitely not. Just, just some titanium rods through your cervix. No big deal, right? Yeah, like no big deal. No big deal. I mean, I myself have not had an IUD, but I understand that that is one of the most painful procedures that exists. And again, oftentimes without any pain medication. And that is like a fraction of the size of, you know, what we're talking about here. Insane. Insane. Okay. Couple last questions to sum up. Um, First of all, what's next? What's next for you, the project, everything? You're working with an amazing group, an amazing doctor, your own physician. It's it's incredible. Tell me what's next. Yes, yes. What's next often feels like what's happening right at this moment. I don't know if you feel the same way about your company, um, but oh my goodness, it's, it's such an exciting time. 
So we are we are thrilled. We're uh, we're joining a really competitive incubator program at Cornell Tech this fall, and there we will advance our development work. Um, so we're we're really excited to continue building throughout the Cornell ecosystem. It's it's just it's been an incredible environment and um, helped launch us in in many ways. So that will happen starting in September. Um, we are also beginning to actively fundraise, which is a, a really exciting time for the company as well. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm drawing again on another, you know, part of my career in helping others see the, the vision and the value of our message and our product. Um, one of, I think, the most exciting moments for our work, I, I really consider this a, a milestone, and it would have been a milestone regardless of whether we'd won, you know, because we're working during the pandemic and so much has happened remotely. Um, my partner and I had only seen responses to our work over Zoom and it hadn't been a large audience. And when you're coalition building one person, one meeting at a time, uh, it's sort of easy to think like, okay, is this as big as I think it is? How is this really going, you know, like what's this going to look like? And when we were in the room in May, it was the first time that we had presented publicly our work to an audience. And, you know, it's an audience of healthcare investors, healthcare technologists, um, folks who are uh, affiliated with the, with the hospital. And we were in the room and it was like, it was so obvious, like everyone's, you know, eyes like opened <laughs> and, and everyone was tracking with what we're trying to do. And so I, I look at that moment and I look at some moments that we have coming up for greater visibility for our work. And I'm just so incredibly encouraged. The Like I said before, you know, this is such a solvable problem and the solution to us is so very obvious. And we see when we when we share it publicly, that is the response as well. So, you know, we're, we're looking forward to more visibility, more traction, um, and then the actual building. We're in the process of bringing on an engineering team to work on prototype development and, and bring this work to life. So it's, it's not a light schedule. Uh, I think I listed like three enormous work streams that are all going on concurrently. Uh, but again, you know, I mentioned this at the beginning, this is the reflection of my work in the world. This is when I work professionally, this is what I work on. And it's, it's so, so deeply meaningful. If anyone's going to do it, it's you a hundred percent. Thank you. Okay. Last question, last question. And I ask this of everyone, why is it important for patients to take their health into their own hands. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is the best question to to ask all of us. Um you know, I I have such respect and such regard for the physicians who saved my life and who treated me and you know, I I think of these three women, these three physicians and I have, um, you know, I've canonized them, right? Like they each have halos and wings when I think of these three women. They're so remarkable and they're so important to me and my family. Um, every doctor sees so many patients every single day and every doctor, and again, you know, I, my, my experience in the healthcare system, I understand might be drastically different to someone who's listening to this, um, you know, I understand that the doctor who is seeing 30 patients a day or, or more uh, is spending 15 minutes with them and is you know, very, very quickly trying to get downloaded on everything that they need to know about this person for that 15 minute care window that they get with that patient maybe once a year. And for the other millions of seconds and minutes that that patient has to go on and live his or her life, um, that is always outside the purview of a physician. And so there's always going to be this lopsided arrangement of what the patient knows and understands intimately about him or herself and what is available for, you know, what is available to be understood in that really, really small window. And so when I think about you know, we can use cervical healthcare, we can you, you talk about any other, you talk about cardiac care, you can talk about going to your GP and having your annual physical. And um, the way that I, I view this is, you know, what 
what are the questions that I need answered during this short window that we have going in? And what is the information that I won't leave the room without getting? And I think if every person could approach care that way, interactions with their physicians, um, we would change the literacy and understanding of, of, again, like what this patient-physician relationship looks like. Um, it's, it's very difficult, right? Like we often look at doctors as having all the information and we have none of the information. So we're nervous about speaking up. We feel uncomfortable. We don't want to waste their time. We don't want to ask a stupid question. All the things that like you'd think sort of hold you back in other areas of your life, those come through. Those insecurities are like in high gear going into a doctor's appointment. Um, so what I say is, you know, um, write down the questions that you have, write down the action items or the next steps that you're hoping to get out of the time together, and then make those really, really clear to your provider. Um, my experience is that, you know, providers are um, everything that we just described, right? But they also are humans and they also care very much about the health and the safety of their patient population. And so human to human, the two of you are in that room, you're in this together, use your voice, advocate for yourself. And again, do not leave that exam room before you get what you went in there to get. I love your perspective of highlighting the fact that Yes, they're human and they're doing their job and they're extremely overwhelmed. Like I know in Canada, we're in over our heads completely. And so I, I love that perspective that it is lopsided. You don't really think about that as a, a situation, but uh, I love chatting with you and talking with you. And I love your perspectives on things that I always learn something when I, when I chat with you and a different perspective on on something that's just so obvious. I absolutely adore you. Thank you oh, so much. Rachel, for- thank you. And <laughs> what you have not said enough on this podcast is that you have been mentoring me on this medical device development journey as well. So I look to you and I look at your survivor story and how you have found purpose in your experience through this and, and what you've done and what you've built and how you've looked over your shoulder and opened the door for other women, for other entrepreneurs, and how you are making a contribution to anyone who knocks on your door. So I feel very lucky, again, in our friendship and in our professional chemistry here and all the ways that you have been a real beacon for me to see the future in what this development process looks like. So thank you so much, Rachel. You're the best, Eve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lastly, tell everyone where they can find more about your work, how they can use your device when it's ready to go. Like, where can they find more information about you? Yes, absolutely. Um, So our company is called Mission Driven Tech, and you can find us at www.missiondriventech.com. My work, I also use LinkedIn as a distribution platform. So a lot of the advocacy work I produce through LinkedIn. So please absolutely look me up, Eve McDavid, follow me, connect with me, um, you know, find me there. Uh, And then, you know, in terms of this device, what I'll say, if every woman who has a cervical cancer diagnosis can ask her physician, am I a good candidate for brachytherapy? that is the beginning of this. There will be a new device to use soon, and that will be ours. And in the meantime, there's still such a critical gap in access to the procedure. Even in the U.S., fewer than half of eligible women actually receive brachytherapy. And like we talked about, it's what actually cures cervical cancer. And so the first question is, am I a candidate? And as soon as our device is ready, am does your hospital system carry the blossom by mission-driven tech? That's question number two. The blossom. We, I will never forget. I will never forget. Thank you so much, Eve. You are a change maker. You are super human and you are going to change lives. And I appreciate all the work that you do. Thank you for being a guest today. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's my pleasure. White Coat Warriors is a special presentation limited series from High IV Health. 
Are you experiencing pelvic health challenges? We're looking for participants for our upcoming focus groups. Sign up and learn more on how High Ivy Health is helping women down there and everywhere at highivy.com. You can also find us on social media at High Ivy Health to stay updated on our journey as we break the stigma on pelvic health.